John chapter 4 and verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which, counting from dawn, makes it about midday. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one who you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you lot say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who's called the Christ, when he comes. He'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I am the one speaking to you. Well, let's pray for a moment. Loving Heavenly Father, there is good, good news in this text with all its honesty. 
And so we pray by your Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and pour the living water of your Spirit into our hearts and help us to see more of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, there comes a moment in every good fairy tale where the wedding bells have to ring. I don't make the rules. It is just how it is. And if you listen very carefully, you ought to hear them ringing right now. Because John has been telling us the ultimate true fairy tale. The story of the Son of God sent from heaven to seek out the lost and the damned and bring them into the fold of his Father's love. And right from the very first sign, the big set-piece miracle that drives the rest of the story, John has been playing with the idea of Jesus as the ultimate bridegroom of Israel. Jesus stood in at that wedding in Cana for the bridegroom who could not deliver. And it was a little preview of the banquet that he would one day host at the marriage supper at the end of time, the water of ceremonial washing no longer needed because when his hour arrived, he would wash his people forever at the cross. And so water in Jesus' kingdom could give way to wine. And then at the end of chapter three, which we read not long ago, John made all of those allusions absolutely explicit, didn't he? We heard the last words of the last great prophet, John the Baptist, who said, the bridegroom is here. And so he must get the girl. My joy is complete. He must increase and I must decrease. And so we're reading with bated breath, aren't we? The bride is meant to be going over to Jesus now. Yahweh has come to claim his beloved. And so where is she? Where is this fairy tale bride fit for a king? And then in chapter four, we turn the page and we get the shock of our lives. Because here comes the bride. And she is nothing like what we're expecting. Now, there's more than just the context that brings that point to life. John is playing with all sorts of very sophisticated allusions through chapter four of this gospel. It has been richly put together, but at its most basic, he's playing with a very, very familiar kind of story. Bible hero meets strange foreign woman alone at a well. Where have we heard that story before? There is only one way that story ever goes, isn't there? It's a trope that we ought to be very familiar with. Imagine you sit down to watch a film and you see two men in suspicious hats sitting together side by side on a park bench. They say something cryptic in Russian accents about the weather in Petrograd at this time of year. And then one of them slips the other a folded newspaper. Well, you know exactly what kind of movie you're watching now, don't you? That is a kind of type scene in a spy drama, almost a cliche. 
An unloved girl is made to scrub floors for a cold-hearted stepmother. And it doesn't matter if she's Cinderella or Snow White or Cosette. By the inviolable laws of storytelling, you know she is destined to marry her Prince Charming. I don't make the rules. It's just how it goes. And in the same way, a Bible patriarch comes to be standing thirsty by a well with a foreign woman. And immediately you start to hear wedding bells in the background. It's how Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was found. It's how Jacob found Rachel, his bride, the father of Israel, the man this very well is associated with. It's how Moses met Zephira. Romance in the Old Testament doesn't start in an Italian restaurant when you share a plate of spaghetti like Lady and the Tramp, no. It starts when you meet a tired, sweaty, thirsty, dusty man sitting by a well. And so here he is. He's left behind a promising, apparently wildly successful ministry in Jerusalem where he turned out to be more popular than the most famous preacher of the age. And he's heading towards Galilee, a far less promising place, full of his own people, and so weak and weary and very human, the man John has already told us is the heir to Jacob, the fulfillment of the whole story, comes to be sitting down by a well, just like many a patriarch before him. It's as if he is seeking out his bride. Then we get another reminder from John in verse 6 that the clock is ticking. Remember these little reminders? We've seen them already. Every time we're told the time, it's like a running countdown that began in sign number one and carries on all the way to his hour at the end of this book, the hour of his death. There's a sense that the story is moving on and it has to move on. And then right on cue, verse 7, here she comes. Maybe the most scandalous moment in the gospel. Before long, his disciples will return and they will be shocked. Not just to see him talking alone with a woman. You were allowed to fall in love. But talking with this woman in every possible way. She is completely unsuitable. And the scandal of what Jesus offers her is one of the most wonderful scandals of them all. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. This is a story of a shocking bride and a shocking gift. And it is so rich with wonderful Bible themes that it's going to take us, I think, two weeks to tease it apart and see both of those things fully, the bride and the scale of the gift. And so we'll come back next time and look more closely at exactly what it is that Jesus offers to her. This morning, what I want us to feel is the scandal of the one John introduces us to as the bride of Christ. Who is it that Jesus came to seek and to save? Well, it is the bride we can't believe he would love. And she's here to show us just how wide Jesus' great whoever really is. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Earlier on in this section, we met a very, very good man, Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. He was polite. He was decent and kind. He is braver than he's often given credit for. And he came towards Jesus asking questions. He'd seen the signs that Jesus did in Jerusalem, and he did just what you're supposed to do in response to them. But in the end, so far at least, he wouldn't believe. Because God, by his Holy Spirit, we were told, has to breathe life into our hearts. The very, very good man was there to show us how narrow Jesus' condition is. Whoever believes in him shall not perish. But it really is only those who believe. And so for now, the very, very good man is left on the outside of the kingdom. And instead, we meet someone who John has painted as his exact opposite. A very, very bad woman. She has not seen Jesus' signs. In fact, she's never heard of the man. Nicodemus came by night. She meets Jesus right in the middle of the day. Nicodemus comes searching for answers. She could not care less at first. She's mocking of Jesus where he was respectful. She's ignorant of religious things, verse 22, where he was learned. Nicodemus was a morally upright Pharisee. His whole life had been about trying to get closer to God. She is a serial adulteress running away from God. But she's here to persuade us that whoever really is as wide open as it sounds, Jesus seeks out and loves someone who is discarded, disgraced, disinterested, desperate, and dirty. And friend, if you have ever doubted that Jesus could truly love someone like you, then you need to see that he truly loved someone like this. What kind of person can Christ love and redeem? Well, this is the bride that God the Father picked out for his son. The bride of Christ was discarded, thrown away, Jesus starts this passage where every glamorous ministry would want a church plant, surely, in royal Jerusalem, strategic, successful, important. But as the jealousy mounts there at his success, he moves north for the sake of people in the backwaters, a far less flattering place to serve, full of far less promising people, and of all the unpromising people, of all the unpromising places in the world, he stops on his journey to hang around for a few days in Samaria. You see, Jesus loves the people who make his grace shine, the passed over and the forgotten. Once, verse 5, this place had been right at the heart of God's promise. Jacob, Israel himself, is buried right here. And he passes a parcel of land onto Joseph. Just 
to keep a little foothold in the promised land. But by now, the northerners, the Samaritans, they seem to have cut themselves out of God's story. The kingdom of Israel split in two centuries before this. The Samaritans set up their own rival temple on a bigger mountain than Zion. And whenever in the Bible story Judah was bad, Samaria was rotten. After their exile, it seems as if they are so mixed up in the idolatry of the world that God has just thrown them away. To the Jews, they were worse than pagans. The Samaritans are half-breeds and heretics. Maybe it's a bit like the way Sunni and Shia Muslims might think of each other today. You lot have no dealings with us, verse 9. Let alone stoop to share a water pot with someone like me. And yet here comes the Son of God to write them back into the story. Are you greater than our father Jacob? She asks him. Well, yes. Yes, I am. Here is the true Israel. Come for all of Israel's children, even the ones that seem thrown away. And then there's the woman herself. Could there be any more literally thrown away woman in all of Palestine? Husband after husband after husband, verse 17. And we'll come to her part in all of that. But there are two sides to every story. Or in her case, 12 sides. Surely by this point, she is serially undesirable. And yet, if Sinclair Ferguson's maths is right, Jesus gives more of his time to this one conversation with this one thrown-away woman than with any other person in all of the Gospels. He can love and redeem the discarded. And he can love and redeem the disgraced. Why is she here? At the sixth hour, in the baking hot high noon, lugging around a big heavy jar of water, well, surely it's the only time she can. Why, verse 15, has she got to do all of this seemingly by herself, day after day after day? Probably this is the one time of day she can go and collect her water without having to face yet more disproving looks. Even the Samaritans don't want to be around this one. The men, in all likelihood, see her as someone to ridicule and take for an easy ride. The women would surely hate her the way only a homebreaker could be hated. You don't get to sleep with six men in a small town like this and keep it quiet. She is the village scandal. Then there's her sheer disinterest. It's not exactly love at first sight, is it? In fact, verse 9, she seems to want nothing to do with him. And she can't really believe that he would want anything to do with her. There was nothing special she could see in Jesus. Here was just another man, the last thing she needs. He asks for a drink, and it gets even worse. He's got a Jewish accent. Here is some foreign idiot sitting all tired and pathetic in the sun. What could you possibly offer me, verse 11? 
The well is deep. My life is dried up and hard. What resources do you have, Jesus? I'm the one with the water jar. You're the fool sitting in the heat asking for a drink. What could you possibly give that would do me any good? Now remember how the story is meant to go. Weary traveller asks virginal young woman for a drink. Beautiful Rebecca rolls up her sleeves and waters not only him but all of his camels. That is wife material. Here at last is the antitype. Weary traveller meets town harlot and asks for a drink. No, leave me alone. All the red lights are flashing now, aren't they? Run away, Jesus. Worst wife ever. Run. She's disinterested. And like all Samaritans, she doesn't even want to know when it comes to religious things. Verse 22, you lot are ignorant of the truth. You lot worship a God you don't even know. You could not get a stronger contrast with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, who comes to Christ full of questions about the truth. But Jesus can love and redeem the disinterested. There is hope for that child of yours who right now seems as though he couldn't care less. How many times have we seen that story play out in this room? Jesus can love and redeem the desperate. Surely that is the real sadness in this woman's life and the real mark of Jesus' compassion, how tragically desperate she must have been. We're told so little of her backstory, we've got to be careful. But it's enough, isn't it, to know that she lived through bitter unhappiness and disappointment, passed from man to man to man, desperately hoping that one of them would stick around and provide for her, that one of them would bring her happiness, fix whatever it is she's looking for. More mouths to feed with every marriage, more thirst to quench, more water jugs to lug home in the heat and the shame. How thirsty she must have been for something better There's nothing that shows us what desperation is like more powerfully than real thirst is there. Just remember the last time you were desperate for water. It's unbearable. What kind of person can Jesus love and redeem? Well, John says it is more shocking than you will ever believe. The bride of Christ was discarded, disgraced, disinterested, desperate, And most shocking of all, she was dirty. For a start, she's seen as intrinsically dirty. The rabbis taught that a Samaritan woman had to be treated as if they were perpetually unclean from the moment of birth. But her disgrace here wasn't just a social thing. There's a moral side to this, which goes far, far deeper. Because outside of the movies, adultery is an ugly, ugly thing. I once led a weekend 
seminar when 10 young students gave their first go at giving a short Bible talk, and this was the passage that they were set. And the really striking thing that weekend was how almost all of them talked about this woman in a very postmodern, euphemistic way. Only one of them used the word sin in their talk. The rest talked about how she had idolized sex, how she'd made love into her God and it would only let her down, how she turned a good thing into an ultimate thing. None of them talked about the people she must have betrayed. Not one of them used the word selfishness. Not one of them talked about the children who'd been hurt or the homes broken or the sheer disgust she must have faced every time she caught another woman staring at her. Adultery is a horrible, ugly thing here in the real world. And yes, in that culture, a woman might often find herself thrown away and end up falling on another man in sheer desperation. That is true. But five husbands, surely that is more than carelessness. Whatever it involved, there's a pattern of behavior here. And then to cap it all, an unmarried affair that she's living in now, in all likelihood, some other poor woman's husband. She's not just a victim of some unenlightened age. She's not the only guilty one here, but for every person who accepts that lifestyle, even in desperation, there are many others who make a costlier choice, including plenty of women in the Bible itself who lived hard lives the hard and faithful way. In God's world, adultery is never the answer. It is ugly and it is cruel. Surely enough of us have seen what it does to people to take away the glamour. But just in case we're in any doubt of how John's readers were meant to feel about this woman, he gives us a hint right at the end of the Bible when he writes in another book about another character who he calls the Whore of Babylon. You don't get a more ugly name than that, do you? And we don't have time to get it all out on the table now, but the number of allusions John makes back to this woman is absolutely staggering. The water pot they both carry, the waters they both sit by, the marital status they both lie about, the way people marvel in shock in both passages as they see them. And then he goes and does it again a few chapters later when he talks about the bride of Christ who calls people out of the city so that the thirsty can taste the waters of life. The comparison seems very deliberate. John's readers then would have thought about this woman's lifestyle as something nasty and damaging. It says more about our age, I think, that we don't quite know how we ought to feel about adultery and adultery in a woman. So we won't be responding to this the way God wants us to respond to this unless we see two things. Number one, the lifestyle she was wrapped up in wasn't simply sad. 
And it certainly wasn't anything progressive. This was horrible, skanky behavior. But number two, that horrible, skanky behavior is John's picture of you and me. Not just people out there. So if you bristle at me using a word like that, well, it shows why I had to use it. We don't like to think of sin for what it really is, especially, I think, in a woman who was in all likelihood a victim of these men as much as a wrongdoer. It's uncomfortable for us to call sin by its name. But if we fudge this, we rob ourselves of the power of this passage. This really is the kind of person Jesus is willing to call and love and change. You are never so thrown away and shameful and ignorant and needy and morally defiled that Christ won't have you as his spotless bride. Why would a man like Jesus want to speak to her, verse 9? She cannot fathom it. But by verse 16, do you notice he has her complete attention? Because it turns out he's not some foolish stranger. No, he saw exactly who she was before he ever set eyes on her. And he puts his finger right where it hurts. She tries in one last desperate attempt to cover it up with lies. I have no husband. But as Sinclair points out, that response comes far too quickly, doesn't it? It's the kind of desperate defensiveness that only a hurting conscience produces in us. Not someone sexually liberated and free. She's living with deep, painful shame, but Jesus has found her out. In fact, he's been having this conversation with her all along. While he knows the very worst there is to know. It's a level of grace that she has never experienced or imagined in all her life. Someone would know everything and yet have a conversation like this with her. So he's not being unkind in forcing the issue. He's prizing open her heart in loving pity, showing her her need for forgiveness. And this, this is what makes her one of the great heroes of John's gospel. Jesus shines his exposing light on her life. And she does what Nicodemus could not bring himself to do. She steps closer into the light where all the ugliness is shown up for what it is so that it can be clearly seen, chapter 3, verse 21, that God's grace has done it all. A shocking bride, the sort of bride we cannot believe he would love, but thank God he does, because there's hope for you and me. And so from heaven he came and sought her, and to provide for her what none of the others could. Now we'll have to come back next week and see what it is exactly that Jesus gives her, because it is rich and beautiful and satisfying beyond anything she would have dared to dream. 
But if one of us was to leave here and be hit straight away by a bus and never get to hear the end of the story, that would be a very sad thing, wouldn't it? Hopefully, now that we've been reading this book for four chapters, we know something already of how this will all work out, but let's have a little sneaky peek at it. Again and again, already, we've seen John playing with images of water. Jesus has come to baptize us with his Holy Spirit, to cleanse us, to do inside and spiritually what the water in John's baptism only promised. And now Jesus comes to what must surely be one of the saddest, thirstiest characters in the Bible. And his offer to her yet again is an offer of water. I can give you something that the water Jacob left you never could. That was the best the Old Testament had to offer. But it was only ever a sip of the real thing. What I have to give, verse 14, is like a fountain of water welling up inside you forever. It will never run dry. But here's the spoiler. That water will do more than simply quench her thirst. The water Jesus gives will make her beautiful. It will wash away every last stain and not only make her his, but make her holy and spotless. Notice the new word Jesus introduces into this water imagery now. It's not just water, it's living water. That's a funny phrase, isn't it? But it's going to become a major theme in this book, tapping into a rich, wonderful set of promises from the Old Testament that we're going to have to give some time to. But maybe if you want to have a little think about it this week, Ezekiel 47 would be a good place to start. A promise God makes to a people who seem discarded, disgraced, disinterested, desperate, and dirty. Cast off into exile, their temple abandoned by God, a spiritual desert. But God shows Ezekiel a picture of a river, a beautiful, life-giving, healing river, spilling out from God's temple and running all the way to the sea. And everywhere it flows, the sadness is washed away. This is water that brings beauty out of brokenness. Even the seawater is healed. It's turned fresh. Every single thing it touches bursts back into life. Beautiful trees and fruits burst up on either side of its banks. And so do you see what Jesus is holding out to this sad, sinful woman? Come to me. Receive me through my Holy Spirit. And I will undo everything. And that is surely what God is saying to each one of us here today. Whether you feel he could never love you like this, or whether that love feels so old it's lost its scandal. When my hour comes, says Jesus, verse 21, I will put everything right. 
I am the true source of everything God's temple ever promised to give. Nobody who worships through me is discarded by God. Nobody who's welcomed by me need live in disgrace. Nobody who hears what I have to tell them about the love of the Father can stay disinterested and ignorant about how to come to God. What I have to give is true, life-giving, sin-cleansing, soul-sustaining water. Nobody who drinks from that need ever be desperate for any other cure. And nobody who I have washed need ever feel dirty again. And so right now, verse 26, I have come to find you and love you if only you can believe it. You've done the hard bit. You've faced your desperate needs. Right now, the bridegroom's voice is speaking, calling you. Today is the day. Will you leave behind everything that is broken? And will you be mine? Well, let's bow our heads and give him thanks for such extraordinary grace. Let's pray. I never heard a sweeter voice. It made my aching heart rejoice. Wondrous grace that brought me home to God. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a kind and patient God you are. Thank you that in our desperate thirst, in our terrible aching need for forgiveness, you sent a saviour who is willing to love and change people like us. So help us, Father, to drink from the only water that can save us and satisfy us and make us holy. Help us to rejoice in the life that only Jesus can give. For we ask it in his name. Amen.